Well, good morning. As most of you know, I was meant to be in Israel uh, for this Sunday, but I'm not, thankfully. And just by way of update, um, Sharon and David Hall, Paul and Robin Jago, who were in Israel when uh, the war began, they are on their way home, but they'll be taking basically a tour of various airports in uh, the Middle East and Europe to get home. And I think they'll be home tomorrow or Tuesday, or is it today? Oh, this afternoon. Wow, I'm behind the times. But um, thankful that they're on their way home. Thankful that I'm not in Israel. I was, so I was not meant to preach today. Hannah was, but we switched around a little bit. She'll be preaching next week. Um, we switched around because she was focused on our generational healing uh, discipleship weekend that we had, which was very fruitful, very good. Glad uh, to have had John Rice here with us. So here I am. I'm finishing up our uh, three-week look into Paul's letter to the Philippians. Um, but before we dive into chapter 4, let me pray. And then I want to point out something that may be obvious to you, but that I think is really important to be reminded of, what I'll call the both and of the New Testament. All right, let's pray. Father, we bless you this morning, and uh, we thank you. For your kindness to us, we do thank you that you're bringing home uh, the Jagos and the Halls safely. We thank you, Lord, for your love for us expressed through your word and your presence to us, Lord Jesus, through word and sacrament today. We do pray again this morning for the peace of Israel. We pray, Lord, that you would work justice and peace in that land, Lord. And even in all of these temporal things, our minds are set on what we know is coming, what um, the true shalom, the true and new Jerusalem that is coming from heaven, where heaven and earth unite. We pray for that. We pray, even so, come quickly, Lord Jesus. And we pray, come and be with us today as, as we do hear from your word. I pray that you would bless us. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Amen. So again, what I'll call the both and of the New Testament what am I talking about? Uh, the sacred scriptures of the Christian faith, they aren't merely a collection. And I think you know this. They aren't just a collection of detailed historical happenings or pithy, deep spiritual sayings or moral and ethical guidelines for its adherence, the things that we tend to expect from religious texts. As with Philippians, the majority of these happenings, the majority of these sayings and ethics, they come to us in the form of letters to a particular people in a particular place at a particular time, complete with personal names and detailed situations. But even during the immediate era in which they were written, the first recipients knew that God was uniquely speaking to them and through them. These words from God's, uh, to God's messengers and through God's messengers, but not only speaking to them, they were speaking to us. These letters were preserved. They were circulated in the earliest years as an ongoing outpouring and outworking of the presence and the power of the Holy Spirit through the men God called to give direction to the church and to comfort this unlikely community that was emerging like a wheat field through the cracks of all that Roman concrete. These weren't men in towers and libraries writing philosophy and theology. They were in the crucible of ministry. They were in the trenches. 
And the work these words were doing, it was nothing short of miraculous. Their generation knew it, as did the generation after, and the generation after them. And we still know it. Not religiously, but experientially, as we receive them by faith, and and as we hear in them something as universally comforting as they are challenging to us. As the same Holy Spirit who inspired them now works in us to connect them to us and us to them. And in this way, as we peer backward into Philippians, we see ourselves. And we're meant to. We're meant to see ourselves. We're meant to see the particularity, but also the universality of this message and of this power. So let's look some more. By some standards, Philippi was, uh, was a thriving church. It was doing well in many ways, but it's moving forward in what we might call a pressure cooker. Their beliefs are absurd by Roman standards and even illegal. And Philippi is also a deeply nationalistic city. And like it or not, and we still need to hear this today, nationalism is simply not compatible with Christianity. Something had to give, and it was giving. To follow Jesus meant for them the potential loss of business, it meant the loss of resources, not to mention family and friends, and to reject many of the social norms for moral reasons would have meant sticking out like a sore thumb, which I don't know anybody who likes that experience. Many of these families would have turned away from a pretty comfortable life to embrace what you might call a community of meaningful discomfort. And I think that's what the church is, a community of meaningful discomfort. So think about this. It meant there was a lot at stake among these families who depend on one another for everyday support and encouragement. The decisions that were being made together every day are made in the context of pressure, of anxiousness, and worry, and weariness, and difficulty. It reminds me of a particular genre of movie that I'll call the group survival ethic. Plenty of those movies out there, right? Everybody's just trying to survive, and they're in this hardship together. It's epitomized, I think, in the Liam Neeson film, The Gray, if you've seen that. Here's a quick summary. There's this plane of uh, oil workers that goes down on the Alaskan tundra, and now they're trying to survive their injuries. They're trying to survive the cold. They're trying to survive, uh, you know, worst of all, a pack of wolves that is hunting them as they journey to the river, which in their minds is the only way to get back to civilization and to rescue. But a key part of the story is them trying to survive each other. Confronted with their mortality and with their fear and their exhaustion and their loss and in many ways being at their worst or at their weakest. The early church would have understood this dynamic. Chapter 4 of Philippians, it opens with Paul making a very general appeal along with a very personal appeal. He writes this, he says, Therefore, my brothers and sisters whom I love and long for, my joy and my crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. I love you, but be strong. And he follows it with this. Here's the particular. I entreat Euodia and Syntyche to agree in the Lord. So stand firm, I love you, but by the way, what about that thing? Those folks. And their quarrel, if you think about it, it must have been pretty significant for Paul to have heard about it 
all the way back in prison and, um, and to, to warrant him mentioning it in his letter. It must have been a big deal. And he asked his true companion, which we assume would have been Epaphroditus, who uh, he's going to deliver this letter. He, he says this, he asks him, true companion, help these women who have labored, labored side by side with me in the gospel. Help them. And as an important side note, women like Euodia and Syntyche, they were instrumental in the founding of the church at Philippi. We know because Acts 16 tells us that three important things happen leading to this church being planted. Three important things. First, Paul had a dream in which he was told to go to Macedonia. So he goes, specifically to Philippi. Second, a group of Greek women who were converts to Judaism, they came to hear Paul and Silas preach, but they, there was no synagogue there, so they were preaching by the river. And so there, Lydia, who is a merchant or businesswoman, she became a follower of Christ, and then her whole family was baptized. She became the most notable force for the planting of the church at Philippi, which is not surprising because women already had a very prominent place in Macedonian society, in Macedonian life in general. So the core group of first converts were women, and the location of its first house church was in Lydia's home. And then thirdly, Paul and Silas are eventually, well, they're, they're beaten, and then they're put in prison in Philippi, and as they prayed, the jail was rocked, and the doors popped open. You remember that story? And this miracle ignited the faith of a jailer whose whole family was also baptized. So the seed of the church is planted, and through Lydia, through this larger group of women, and through this jailer and his family, the roots begin to take hold in this unlikely place and among this unlikely people. But as Paul's writing this letter, by now, the anxiety in the church appears to be rising higher than the urgency, which I talked about last week. So just as he's done several times in this letter, he calls them to rejoice. And I talked about that at length last week. He challenges them to contend for joy in the midst of challenging circumstances, not to cave in to anxiousness and the strife that that so readily creates. He says in verses 5 and 6, and this is in our reading today, let your reasonableness, or we could translate that like your gentleness, your um, ability to be gentle, be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. The word that Paul uses that we translate anxious is merimnao, and it means basically don't be distracted by concerns. It works out in the constant feeling of, for example, what am I going to do? How is this going to play out? It's the feeling that problems seem to have no solution or end, that questions may have no answer and the struggle may have no end. It lives right there in the middle of your gut and it lives right at the center of your vision. It's the distracting thing that captivates our emotions and our thinking. We all know this well. So Paul intends to do what? He intends to shift their distraction to the reality of Christ. The Lord is at hand, he says, so take your need to him with thanksgiving. Let's just be honest right here. This is often the last thing we want to do when it's hard. When we're in this kind of state, we don't want to seek God and we don't want to be thankful. 
Or is that just me? If we're really honest, we want to blame God instead. We might think, I am paralyzed by fear or sadness or loss. This feels like it's killing me. I can't stop thinking about it. And I'm supposed to rejoice, to pray in thanksgiving. For what? Am I really supposed to do this? And Paul's answer is yes. Yes. Not because you should, as though it's your Christian duty, but because it's actually the way to actual peace. In fact, it's the very move that Israel was taught to make throughout the generations of all their challenges and difficulties and distractions. Remember what you have. Remember what God has done. Remember who you are. And give thanks. But notice that Paul doesn't say everything external is going to smooth out if you pray and be thankful. He doesn't. He says the peace of God will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. It should be obvious to us, I think, that Paul is not remotely a platitudes guy. I hate platitudes. Maybe you do too. He's in prison. And after all, you know, he only stands to lose credibility by just giving them platitudes. If he's just blowing smoke in their direction with a little positivity pep talk, you know, that would just be bad pastoral care. The worst, in my opinion. So I'll say this. Personally, I have genuinely found that what he's saying is true. I have, through many seasons of significant turmoil and in my temptation to live in self-pity and ingratitude. If I'm able to turn my heart and mind in gratitude toward the things not only that I have known and experienced in Christ, but able to just turn to Christ, seek a place of quiet, seek just some level of attention, a shift toward something else, toward something other than my circumstances, not dwelling on them, and begin to dwell on the Lord. Just let even the Word of God wash over me. Something changes. So the reason Paul's answer is yes is that he understands the makeup of the human soul. He knows that to get their hearts fixed on the presence of God in the circumstances they are facing, it's to graciously separate them from the tyranny of their circumstances. Because it's going to be one or the other that remains at the center. It's the exchange, actually, that Jesus promises and that we hear every Sunday in the, in the comfortable words. Come to me, give me your burdens, and I will give you rest. It's taking Jesus up on a promise that he made. My yoke is easy, my burden is light. So Paul says in verse 7, And the peace of God which surpasses all understanding, which we don't like that caveat. I don't. The peace of God which surpasses all understanding and all the explanations that we want, it will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Literally, it will be a watchman for you. God's peace will be the watchman over our aching hearts and our distracted minds. Even if we can't understand how it will all work out or know when and how God plans to help or rescue. 
We have a watchman over us. The point is that when you've given it to God in prayer, when you've given it in outcry and even in gratitude, it is his responsibility now. It's his weight. It's his focus. When God takes our burden, then that reasonableness that Paul is calling for, that gentleness is possible. It's actually tangible in our lives. We don't live as an anxious presence in our circumstances. We can rest if we will take God up on it and we will inhabit our situation differently. I've found it to be true. I'm a witness. But it's hard to get there. And I'm a witness of that too. Verse 18, Paul steps further than calling them to prayer. He has more to say about their distraction. There's more at stake here. He calls them to care for the life of their minds. He says, finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, he says, think about these things. Meditate on these things. No matter how difficult our circumstances, the world is not completely devoid of the good. And I know it does not feel that way sometimes. Our lives are not devoid of the good. But this anxious spirit that we end up with, like so many blinders for our perception, it tells us otherwise. It's like some of the grueling rides that I've taken on a bike through absolutely beautiful terrain. And if I don't stop to look around, it's all sweat and pain and a longing for the end of the trail. Why did I even get out here anyway? What's Paul saying here about our thought life? Certainly we don't, you know, we don't love real life ugliness when it comes to our own lives or our homes or our nation, but we do often want to dwell on the ugliness. We talk about it constantly. We watch it play out on our screen in front of us. We even want to ooh and ah at all that's not peaceful or beautiful in the world. It's strange. Think about it. I mean, oddly, we are most often fascinated by the things we most wish were not true in the world. We just easily go there to dwell on what's ugly. What does that say? I think Paul would say we're in a battle for our, our minds and our pieces at stake. No, he's not telling them or us to put our heads in the sand. <laughs> but he is saying again that they and we, we have some real agency as to the well-being of our hearts and our minds. We have some influence over the peace we have and the peace we give. And we should be glad that we do. Lastly, Paul gets autobiographical again. He, was, he says, I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at length you've revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Sometimes I wonder if maybe he's just given them the benefit of the doubt. They forgot about him. They got distracted but he's being quite pastoral. It's been a while, but now the imprisoned Paul is on their radar again. They didn't mean to ghost him, apparently, or at least he's giving him credit for that, but it had some real-world consequences for him. Yet here's how he's thinking about it, and he wants them to think about it. He says in verse 11, Not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. In other words, his focus isn't on the hardship that their distance or their distraction has meant for him. <clears throat> he sees that God was at work in him and on his behalf nonetheless. So he wants them to understand and even to internalize this for themselves. 
In Roman settlements like Philippi, contentment, it sort of pulls on Stoic language. To be content in Stoicism usually meant complete independence from, uh, you know, an indifference to the situation. Trying to just be Stoic, right? But that's not what he's saying. He's saying quite the opposite. He says, I know how to be brought low. I know how to abound in any and every circumstance. I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I found the secret. So you got contentment. There's some language of stoicism and then this language of secret. It it would have pricked their ears up. Through ceremonies, through reenactments of the life and death of their gods, the Greek mystery cults that were you know, ran, ran rampant in Philippi. These promised to initiate people into this deeper understanding of things like mortality and immortality. They became mystai by doing this, knowers of the secrets. And Paul is subverting the language and he's saying, I found the secret. It isn't about just being indifferent to these things. He says, the secret I have to offer you amounts to actually facing the good and the bad of life and of circumstance. It's not stoic self-sufficiency that's the means to find contentment. You ever just tried to grin and get through it and pretend like it wasn't going on, turn away from it? No, it's not self-sufficiency. It's the sufficiency of Christ right there in the midst of hunger and need. For Paul, his suffering has been his teacher. And what has he learned? He says, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Yet it was kind of you to share in my trouble. I know, he's saying, after all, that I am always dependent on strength beyond me. That is a hard thing to get for this guy to get through this skull right here. I am always dependent on strength beyond me. Paul says, yeah, it's a wonderful thing when I have the help of others. And it is. But when it doesn't come, my weakness is, get this, in fact, my way into the strength of Jesus. In other words, I don't have anything better or deeper to offer you than to say from prison with a straight face and a clear conscience, Jesus has been good to me. He's been enough. He's more than enough. And that's how I have come to be content in these awful circumstances. And this is what Paul wants for them. As he said in chapter 3, it's the kind of maturity that will keep them moving forward, knowing that they have received, they've attained, he says, the love and mercy of Jesus, knowing they are in this together, come what may. The language in chapter 3, the prize that they're after, the prize of the upward call, of Jesus, it's not an extraction from life as it really is. It's not an escape. No, this prize is ours as we pray and as we bless and as we share and as we get along on our way through the messy middle. Because I don't know how your middle's going right now, but mine's pretty messy. I need you and you need me. And we need Jesus, and we need the peace and the contentment that that reality works in us, regardless of our mess. This calling to be a community of meaningful discomfort, that belongs to us too. The way forward is the same for us, drawing us to Jesus. 
drawing us to grateful remembrance. That's what we're doing every Sunday. Remember. Even when our instincts are just to forget, to back out, or to back away when the concerns and the distractions are too great. But Paul's simple prayer, and I'll close with this, and this is how he closes his letter. I think it's enough. Because after all, it's everything. He says this. He says, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. That's the only way that all of this can be true for us, experientially, intellectually. In our age, as it was in that age, that we are wholly dependent upon the gift that God has given us in Jesus. For all of it to be true, and even when it doesn't feel true, to be truth to us and enough to move forward in. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Lord, help us to receive that grace afresh today. That all the imperatives and the indicatives in this word from Paul to the Philippians and to us would be true to us by your grace, by your work in us, by your spirit. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.